0: Well, thank you. I, oh, for...
1: oh, oh wait. Thank you so much both of you for for bringing me that cake. That was amazing.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for um for this wonderful dinner you just uh made. The uh broccolini's, that's my favorite. I really liked it. Um should we go on and get some tea and scones in the tea parlor?
1: Yeah, let's head over there and um we can have a little conversation
0: hello this is marilyn spicy aka mary one of the caretaker at the satanic estate no caretaker performer or creature living in the secret tunnels under the satanic estate is a spokesperson for the satanic temple the views in this conversation do not reflect the views of the satanic temple and are simply our own Well, thank you for participating in this interview. I am very glad to put you on the spotlight tonight. Thank you. Your show is a lot of things that I've always wanted without knowing. And uh, I think you really deserve to be spotlit so that everybody can enjoy it just as much.
1: (laughs) Um, Thank you.
0: Well, if you want to provide our listeners with your uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the handles, um, so we could find you on social media if you have anything else that you want to advertise, like your personal website, blog, whatever.
1: Yeah, I can totally do that. My uh, Twitter is Satanic Chef 666 and my Instagram is... Um, the satanic chef official it originally it originally was the satanic chef but it mysteriously disappeared in november i went to log in one day and it was just gone it was very strange and you'd think that facebook would be a company that has billions of dollars like they do that would have a network of a customer service set up but it was impossible to get a hold of anybody because they do not. It was really strange. So the Satanic Chef official is now my new Instagram. So you guys mm-hmm. can follow me there. I'm more active on that. I also have a Facebook page, the Satanic Chef.
0: Okay, thank you. Well I hope people gather around around those beautiful dishes of yours because I've seen a bunch of them and I want to eat it all.
1: What did you um, think about it? Like, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt you. What did you think no, about? No, you're the, fine. Did you like the broccolini? Or are you?
0: Yes, I love broccolinis. and I love that you always like tar them a little bit of like. I know it's not like very uh, traditional, but I like a little bit of black on mine because it's like crunchy and stuff. I like it.
1: Well, there's a reason why I do that. It creates a umami flavor, umami in. Japanese means sweet, salty, sour, bitter. So when you char things, uh, they usually have a bitter uh, ashy kind of taste to it. But if you season it and you char it, and you keep your product whole, there's also still the sweet, the sour, the salty, the bitter of the product with a little bit of the char seasoning on it. So traditionally, in japan they would blacken a pork belly and they would braise it and they braise it in pork stock and that would turn out to be a umami flavor because once it incorporates all into one it creates a smoky sweet sour salty bitter kind of taste which is like to many people who believe in the supernatural the sixth sense but it's the sixth sense of cooking it's the ingredient that is, um, isn't really thought of. And a lot of people eat this and they have no idea that they're eating umami flavors. And believe it or not, like MSG is a great example of that. MSG is actually not that bad for you. It actually helps headaches. It's very similar to aspirin, but it's not gonna make you as sick as aspirin would, but I wouldn't recommend eating MSG in large amounts. So that's why I like to char things and create that flavor, because it opens people up to a diversity within food.
0: Well, for people interested in um, finding this recipe for the broccolinis we just had that were excellent, I will recommend going to VHQ. And uh, our blog is on tstvhq.com. You can find it on the little tab called blog. And the recipe will be right after this podcast on there.
1: They can also find it in the March or the April. uh, So on the satanictemple.tv, I have a cooking show. And I have several episodes up on there. And I will be teaching people in the next episode on how to make uh, this dish as well.
0: Nice. Okay. Now let's talk about the chef. Before digging in the interview, um, before I question you like it's the inquisition, uh, feel free to tell us a little bit more about your name, your age, Jack, because everybody loves Jack. And, uh, you know, little short bio.
1: Okay, well, my name's Adam. Uh, Birth name is Adam Ostrovsky. And uh, I grew up in a town called Needham, Massachusetts. Uh, I grew, after growing up there, I went to college at Bradford College in Haverhill, Massachusetts. It was closed while I was going there due to financial ruin that nobody knew about. I transferred to a college in Boston called Newbury College, which is also no longer existent. And during my first semester, at like the bitter end of it, I was hit by a car and I broke my tibia and my fibula into several places. And I had compartment syndrome. I had, um, they had to remove my muscles and they had to give me a fasciotomy. which is where they had to ruin my skin just to relieve the pressure. I basically almost lost my leg. And, uh, it's not a very, very good thing to think about. And I'm sorry if I've brought some bad imagery to you, but during this time I was laid up in my bed and I would watch a lot of cable TV, the Food Network. And I would also watch movies. And The Sopranos were big back then. And I would notice that The Sopranos had a chef, Artie Bucco, and he would always cook things in the kitchen. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. And then, like, in Goodfellas, they were making spaghetti sauce in prison. And I'm like, you know what? This is really – this makes me want to get up out of my bed. So, like, a month and a half later – I get up, go downstairs, and I make a tomato sauce just because I was influenced by watching these movies. And I would get up, go downstairs, make more things. while my, I was living with my family at the time, and they were just watching me on crutches, terrified that I was going to slip. <laughs> and then I just decided, because Newbury College had a culinary program that I was going to enroll into it, in 2001
0: uh, so this is how you became a uh you became interested in cooking and this is how you became a student so i yeah, guess
1: how did me... you become
0: a chef did you go to culinary school then did you finish culinary school where was it when was it um
1: so how like, were you
0: trained
1: So like with a lot of people that have uh, broken bones and they wanna get back on their feet. So I set culinary school as a goal for me to be able to walk fully again. It took me almost a year. And when I did it, I was like, this is what I wanna do. I wanna be grateful of the fact that I have two feet that I can walk on them. So I went to culinary school at Newbury College and I didn't even know how to cut an onion properly. I didn't even know anything about any of the French sauces, uh, hollandaise, any of that. So culinary school, and was, I I didn't really enjoy Newbury College. So I left after a semester, and I just started working in the industry. And I worked at, I think, a chain restaurant back then. And then I ended up getting an internship at Blue Ginger, which was owned by a celebrity chef by the name of Ming Tsai. And he had a TV program on the Food Network. His restaurant was actually a town over from my parents, uh, in a town over from my parents' house at the time. So I would just go there at nine in the morning and I'd work till midnight every day. And I did this six days a week for three or four months until they said, you've, You've done great. Uh, you should go get a job in the industry somewhere. So I did. I, I went and I applied to a restaurant in Boston, and they hired me and it called Selle de I worked. I met a lot of my lifelong friends and a lifelong mentor of mine, Louis DiBakari, And uh, we worked together until July of 2004. And then I moved to California and I went back to culinary school. I went to California Culinary Academy in San Francisco and I was there for a year. And after I graduated, I did a couple of, would pick up a couple shifts at the grand cafe, which uh, was downtown in San Francisco. And uh, I ended up, moving to Los Angeles and then back to Boston. That's a different story. And since I had moved back, I had worked in six, seven professional kitchens in oh. the course of 14 years.
0: So what did you like best about your initiation of, um, to, to the unseen arts of cooking? What did you like least? Like you said, you didn't really like your first culinary school. What was what you preferred then in your what? whole initiation?
1: It wasn't that I didn't like it. I was in a lot of pain at the time that I was going there. I still had a staph infection in my leg that went from my surgeries. And uh, I, I was not in the greatest shape. I, uh, I had some issues with alcoholism, so I wasn't focused. And I just would rather have not gone to school and worked in the industry. I, that was probably the best decision I made. And I, I would recommend to people, if you're gonna go become a chef, you should go to school for business management, get a degree, in an MBA, and then go to, again, not go to culinary school, but go work in a place that is called like a brigade kitchen, where you are learning a professional uh, way of cooking, not something where people are scooping things on a plate, but you're, you're working and learning and learning about every single aspect of, of cooking in a professional manner, how to keep your apron clean, how to keep your chef coat clean, uh, cut your hair short, like everybody else uh, say, yes, chef, no chef head down. And I'm talking to you about Michelin starred places. And uh, that is my, recommendation of people so i have very mixed feelings about culinary school
0: and it's funny because my brother went to culinary school and i've been working in restaurants for 15 years and i've i've worked for big chefs so i know exactly what you're talking about and i actually do recommend the same thing um awesome Culinary school is great to learn the basics, but you're never gonna learn the job and the art without going in this kind of
1: hell. Yeah, you're <laughs> hell you're, not gonna, you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna learn it, and not everybody, every chef is like Gordon Ramsay. Mm-mm. My still my favorite show to watch to this day is Kitchen Nightmares. All the old reruns of it.
0: It's I just hilarious. I just can't I can't do it like i just crunched too much but anyways about kitchen nightmare they they travel i mean they have people from all over the place and everything and you said that you lived on the west coast for a while and uh, then came back Uh, a lot of people i believe uh, would want to know um, about the satanic chef because san francisco where you were is pretty much like where where it was hot back in the days and stuff so, um
1: It was awesome. <laughs> there, there's a chef that I really wished I connected with back then. He is a friend of mine now. He was a Michelin star chef in the city. He opened up a famous restaurant called Number Nine Park here. He ended up at the fifth floor in San Francisco. And I, I made some bad decisions while I was out there. And I really regret them. But one of the things that I am proud of is the life experiences that I had. So back in the day in San Francisco, you had um, tons of chefs and it was, this is 2004. So the environment of cooking professionally was definitely a lot more intense than it is now. And there was no filter on people. It was scary. There was blatant more blatant abuse and it was like going to boot camp so coming from the east coast i noticed that and i'm not trying to knock on california at all i noticed a lot of the kitchens were a little bit more laid back so i probably could have taken advantage of that while i was there
0: but well, while you were there, um, did you did you do um, some kind of like satanic pilgrimage? Any stories, souvenir around that? Like um...
1: I did. Okay. Well, I've always been interested in Satanism for the longest time.
0: So, what's your religious background before talking about your Satanism? Did did you were you raised um, in any particular um, religion setting?
1: No, I was raised pretty much non-de- non-denominational. My father is Jewish, my mother is Episcopalian, and we would celebrate both Christmas and Hanukkah, getting tiny gifts at Hanukkah, maybe one gift, and then we just get a bunch of gifts on on Christmas, like every other kid, until you turn like 14, when you're and you know. You don't get as many gifts
0: uh, then you get you get tickets for the cinema <laughs> you get tickets to the
1: cinema you get a um, you get get socks you get um, a gift card
0: <laughs> so from but, that you got interested in Satanism um, so when did you first get interested in Satanism
1: I got interested in Satanism probably around 92 oh, 93 sure. old were you twelve thirteen. It was shortly after I read American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Went to a camp in in um northern Maine. It was a sleepover camp and so every kid wanted to read this book and we were all we were all just we all ended up with copies of it. And we're reading it. And it was like it it was so like terrifying. And uh when I came back from camp I was like well, I'm not afraid of anything now. If I could read a book like that, I can read more books. And I would just study all the occult books in the library. And I I don't remember if it was Time Life Magazine was coming out with books on the occult and things like that. And around this time, Batman Returns had come out. And I was like 12. And I had like in my parents' basement, literally uh, a closet where I had a designed a bat costume, just like, Bruce Wayne had, and I would go in and put it on, and (laughs) I was also obsessed with Star Wars. So I was like, "Well, what? Well, what? What's going to give me superpowers? Oh, there's this thing called Satanism. I'm going to buy this (laughs) book, the Satanic Bible. Maybe it's going to help me move things with my mind and fly in the air." I ended up reading it, and the more, the more that I grew older, and I'd read things like about Aleister Crowley and. Um, Nietzsche and things like that it started to come together when uh, I started reading Siddhartha in high school because that book focuses on individuality and that's when I decided to really start calling myself a satanist and uh, it wasn't until I really broke my leg and I was laid up in my bed in my parents' house that I decided, well, I could call myself a satanic chef. That so, didn't really work out very well. <laughs> so
0: did you did you start as- associating satanism and food or early on?
1: Uh, yes, I did. I always so thought. Was that,
0: Were you doing like when you were 12 or 13 and you started calling yourself a... a... satanist or like playing satanist did you make like potion cooking things (laughs) i don't know something like that i
1: would try and i would try and do spells for the the silliest things (laughs) i once had like a cigar box it was like a big cigar box and i filled it with dirt and i had some marijuana seeds and i filled it in with dirt and then i put Christmas tree lights in it and I lit it and kept it under my bed and I guess my mother found it and she was laughing so hard. She (laughs) almost had a heart attack.
0: (laughs) Well that's a great memory. I would think that I was just
1: growing. (laughs) (laughs) So it didn't really work out. I mean it wasn't until like a couple of years later when I was more cognitively Um, developed that I started to realize that this was just a novelty act and this is not actually going to cast a spell and real other things like uh, involving the occult
0: Uh, so you were talking about basically the the team in the kitchen Um, because uh, TST satanism is uh, community-based it's like social um, satanism Um, it's very much axed on self empowerment, just like you were saying, um, by reading the book and everything. But are you a team player, or are you more Absolutely. of a self practitioner of the dark arts? I mean, no, it's everybody's I... everybody is different in TSC. Um, everybody practices differently, and it's not like we can speak for everyone. But yeah, I would like to. I would like to know how you how you um, like team play in the kitchen and your satanism.
1: I have always been a team player in kitchens and I've, I've always known that when, religion aside, that if you don't, if you don't chip in and help others in some sort of a way, then there is no momentum and it's not going to work. So if you keep to yourself and you go at your own pace, let's say you see somebody making a mess in the corner and you just carry on with your day and you don't help that, you know, that person is struggling with their prep. You know, that person is probably not going to, if that person reaches down to just help clean it up, to clean it up themselves, they're gonna get distracted, they're gonna be in the weeds and it's gonna affect the team. It's gonna affect the food. It's gonna affect the chef because that's his product. So the way I look at everything else and always have from a general perspective uh, involving religion, Satanism, or just everyday works of life is that you should go and help that person. That person you should jump in and give a team effort. That's the way I look at things. That's the way I'll always look at things. And I've looked for that in people that I've worked with and recommended for positions because I think that is a very important aspect of people's personalities.
0: I agree. And for our listeners, um, we are not a spokesperson, neither Adam and I, for TSD. So what we... um, what we say we do with our experience, with our practice is ours. We don't speak for the the organization as a whole. And when I say that TST Satanism is social and community-based, it's because that's my take on it. Um, but about the team play, you say you help others, but do you accept help because I know that sometimes when I'm cooking, like I just don't want to have anybody around. Maybe I'll have Jack, how about that? You'll have Jack for sure. But do, do you like having like a, a kumi or uh, somebody who's going to peel your potatoes and if they don't do it right, it's okay?
1: They don't do, I mean, if I ask somebody to do a task like peel a potato and they're not doing it right, I'll look into seeing why they're not doing it right. Even if they were doing it right from the beginning, can tell why they're being fatigued. It's a very hard project for them to take on. So what will I do? Do I have a project probably that's going to take me more than an hour to complete? No, I can set that aside. The urgency should be to help others, because if you don't help others make product very, very, you know, uh, 100%, then you're not going to have it's going to reflect badly on you too. So I would probably be like, Hey man, can I help you with that? And I jump in, peel, them, cut them and they can go on to another task and do something else. So that's just the way I think. And I'll always think.
0: So working in restaurants for 15 years, I can tell you that I appreciate that a lot because I think Thank it's you. more efficient to teach somebody how to fish and so they can learn to fish better in the future than screaming at them and yelling at them and firing them and you have just have to train another person but I wanted to ask when working in a restaurant, um, since you're a pretty peculiar person and in, in a good way I I, I dig it. <laughs> uh, Thank you. When when working in a restaurant, is your sense of humor and you're personally usually compatible with the rest of the kitchen brigade, or are you maybe like a little creepy for them or no. a little kooky, whatever you want to call it?
1: I mean, they usually find out who I am <laughs> early on and it's up to them to really. It's a good way to weed people out and see who's ignorant and who's not and who basically doesn't want to be a part of a team. And I come in there with an attitude that I can come and help make the food taste better and I can help them learn. And that's all that matters. And one of the things that people do that are mistakes is that they don't set boundaries with people that they work with and they end up getting taken advantage of. For instance, you walk into a place, somebody's peeling potatoes and they're struggling. And you go over and help them, and they expect you to go and help them the next day, you need to straight up tell them, look, This is a task that you were assigned to. I have my own things to prioritize right now for us. So I, 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 will, I will, I will, I will, I will, as nicely as I can tell people that. In the past, I've seen chefs snap at other people and just scream in their face with spit flying out of their mouth and their hair falling out. And I don't know, or managers do that to their, their employees. I've seen terrible things, but that's the way I look at things. If people do not beat to the same drum, then they aren't a part of a living organism. You are just It's like you have five fingers. Every single one of these fingers to me is a different position in a restaurant, but they all work for the same hand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you have a thumb, the thumb is a part of the pastry department. If you have, you know, an index finger, that is a part of that is a part of the the hotline or the middle finger is a part of the back waiters, and then you have the Your other two fingers, one is for the waitstaff. One One is the the sommelier. Yeah,
0: (laughs) one is the sommelier.
1: (laughs) But if they all end up going doing their same, their different things, it's not. They're not. They're not contributing to a factor which could create a successful business. Because at the end of the day, Satanism aside, this is about talent and how well you help other people expand their talent and make a business working at a hundred percent that I reflects you both personally on social media now and that reflects what you say in public as well so if somebody's going to go home and they're going to have a couple drinks and then go on social media and post inappropriate things that's going to affect the restaurant poorly you need to need to be able to be aware of these things and that uh, everything you say or do can affect a business uh, unprofessionally and that's the same thing with the five fingers on a hand is that you need to all be a part of the same team and that to me is very satanic in that nobody joins satanism or starts learning about satanism and wants to do just their own thing away from other people when they work with other people because that makes you insubordinate. And insubordination is a very big issue in a lot of different levels of society. And it can affect in kitchens, in restaurants. It can affect the performance of everything 100%. I know it's kind of a tangent, but that's just how I feel.
0: It's, it's fine. Um, I like tangents and I was going to make my own. Um, it, it's funny that you used the hand um, as, as like an image because that's, that's how I, p- I placed my tenants. Like they're all together in the same hands and they, they are all different, but they work for the same thing. And I feel that you're, I feel like your your Satanism, your empathy, your compassion show in what you were just described. So I don't know, I think Thank it you. was a good tangent. Um, so tell us about a particular situation as a chef and how you handled it because we had the example of the potato peeler, but that was kind of like made up. Did you have anything particular that you had to uh, deal with that marked your memory?
1: Yeah, something recent. I had worked at a place and uh, we had a very small team in the kitchen. One of the people that I hired would do things like not show up to work. He wouldn't answer his phone. Most places, it would be no call, no show, no work the next day. But Do you fire somebody when we have a month and a half left to be open or do you, how do you work around that? And the answer is back to what I said before about contributing. And if you see something, say something and say it to yourself and take action. That is exactly what I had to do. I had to say, look, I can either let this person go or I can keep this person on and take the responsibility of their job. You need to re- people really need to think about that when it comes to being a part of a team. That is that is satanic in many ways.
0: Yeah, I think it it as I said before it shows Empathy, compassion, and at the same time if you hired that person you took responsibility and you, you know, rectified the harm that has been done, etc. Exactly. Yeah, it's very it's very us. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so is there is there a chef you admire the most who and why?
1: Yeah, there's a I mean I couldn't just put it as one, but I think a group of there's like a group of group of chefs that I've looked up to in Massachusetts. Uh, Tony Susi, David, David Basenstein, Louis de Bicari, Jamie Biss, uh, Dante de Magistrates, Will Gilson. And I look up to these guys and we're all close professional friends. And, uh, like Jamie Bissonnette is a, a prime example of a great success story. And he grew up in Connecticut. He was a hardcore punk kid, moved to Massachusetts, did the, worked in restaurants here, moved to France, worked in France for, for a while, moved back, became the head chef of a restaurant, became the head chef of another restaurant, became a James Beard Award winner and owns six restaurants all over the world. That is a great success story. That is somebody I look up to. And I was just actually talking about this earlier with a friend of mine. It's funny you ask that because I'm going to kind of incorporate what I'm about to say into this. I've noticed a terrible trend of clicks in the restaurant industry recently where you have people that are being more recognized by the media for the fact that they're friends with somebody else and that they haven't had the experience necessarily needed to perform and that they it it's become it's become kind of a sad issue where i feel like a lot of people are undermining talent and looking towards what's trendy and i think that's always been the case with a lot of things and social media uh, especially influencers will definitely be one of those people that are clueless to a lot of things. They might have a food blog. They might go into your restaurant, but they don't know anything about the chef. They're just doing it because they want to be cool.
0: So let's, let's just pose a little bit because I have a few questions about, um, about what you just the, the whole paragraph you just said um so you said some people that you know some chefs that you know have like had a, a great success story and everything yeah you you had quite you had quite the audience too and i heard about the book you're working on i suppose it's going to be a very personal and satanic book uh like a <laughs> like the the satanic bible of cooking you know like the uh like, the, <laughs> what, is, what is that chef that had that book? You know, like a classical recipe book, but satanic. Um, so we want to know more about that. Uh, what is your favorite cuisine, and what kind of cuisine are you going to offer in this? Like, what's your favorite cuisine to cook? For, um,
1: my, you- so I have a cookbook coming out, and then I have kind of a story about my background which I am writing separately. And the cookbook is going to be titled Black Arches, A Satanic Cookbook. And it is a professional cookbook, meaning that all the recipes I have um, used professionally and they, are t- they all incorporate my professional teachings for over the years. And I, I compare the, the workings of being a professional to somebody that is a uh, martial artist like somebody that's a third degree black belt, you every every time you you know you gain experience professionally or gain experience uh, fighting, you get a different colored belt until you finally get the black belt, and then you get different stripes. That is um, that is that is how I am focusing this cookbook, and I'm incorporating a lot of ideas with Satanism, as well as topics like satanic panic and giving it my own twist on things.
0: That's, that's awesome. Um, Thank you. And you were talking about uh, trends and I'm thinking, you know, there are some like TikTok recipes and stuff like people have their own declinations and stuff like that. So you said, you said something about, uh, about that. What trends are you noticing in the food that amuses you or enrages you, uh, or attract you? Um, you know, like uh, the everything charcoal goth uh, or everything rainbow and everything. Some, some. I mean, I think the rainbow thing is stupid, but that's cute. You know, uh, the charcoal thing is right looks pretty, but whatever. You know.
1: Um. What? what... Basically, what enrages me and what? really insults me are these tiktok trends (laughs) and one of them is the feta cheese trend like there's this dish where people are putting a bunch of cherry tomatoes into a pan and melting a block of feta cheese and they're posting it guilty (laughs) that that is exploiting an art (laughs) you know i i'm guilty of doing similar things too but uh uh it's just uh it's exploiting an art form and it's giving people more credit that have no experience uh or in any business uh cooking getting them you know attention and good pr
0: so i if you want my take on it, I only did it because I was dared to, because I cook too, and <laughs> yeah. I think it's more of a it, it's more of a a home cook thing than a professional cook thing. You would never see that in a restaurant ever. But it's never. it's funny. It's because people are stuck at home and they have nothing else to do than fail at baking a, a loaf of bread or like try a new trend. So uh, for cool. me, it's amusing. For it's it could be insulting if you serve that in a restaurant, but if if a bunch of 13 years old are trying that on TikTok, whatever, you know, like it's amusing.
1: Well, what really insults me the most is that the people that are doing this or that started this don't know who a great chef is from the pizza place down the street or Marco Pierre White. They don't know who Marco Pierre White is. They don't know who like how amazing of a chef he was or is. He's retired now or Joel Robichon. They don't even know what Robichon potatoes is. They have no idea. Uh, (laughs) But that's not the problem that I see. I see that with something like a TikTok recipe where someone's throwing a block of feta cheese into a pan. You know what? Feta cheese isn't really made for baking. You could do something cool like get a block of boucheron cheese, which is a goat cheese that is made for baking. Why don't you do that? You know, With some
0: honey and rosemary, yes.
1: Exactly. It's like people take <laughs> shortcuts. And when you take shortcuts, you are a, a liar in my sense. You were just... Okay.
0: Is there anything uh, that you would not be willing to cook or eat? Um, the most, uh, What is the most outrageous thing that you've ever eaten or cooked? Like for me, I have eaten snake and uh, I have like two bugs and stuff like that so I know some people are like Ugh. what what do you think is the most
1: well I won't cook uh, domesticated animals I refuse to do that I joined a, I, I see a lot of you know there's a lot of trends of that I things like I won't cook that's a really hard thing like for me because i will cook anything for somebody if they want it if they ask for a steak i'll cook them a steak Uh, if they ask for a rare piece of shark i mean i guess there would be some kind of moral dilemma there because number one it's an endangered species and number two that is not right and i'm not going to be a part of something like that that is where i put my foot down i will not cook any kind of expensive like tiger meat or any kind of indeed like i said endangered species or something like that i have my someone gave me a like a bunch of human meat i'd be like no i am not touching that and number two that is like I have to go. I can't be a part <laughs> of this right now. Um <laughs>
0: It's eat. funny that people think that satanic, satanic practitioners uh satanists are uh eating babies and stuff like that and we're like, "Um what kind of meat is that?" <laughs> right. But um anyways, I'm glad you have some ethical boundaries. Um, I do that's that's great
1: <laughs> and even so, recently I've tried to help cater to more uh, vegans and vegetarians mm-hmm. with my cooking and um, that's just because I, I I care
0: I think it's very uh, appreciated and it's very inclusive of you Thank um you. and we were I was just saying like people think that we eat babies in some kind of ritualistic thing They do some some people think that Food is like magic, and uh, and like magic in the movies, you know, uh, you like you everything in the cauldron and everything. And there is no great spell casting without a great sacrifice or price to pay.
1: It's funny you say that because a lot of people, when I tell them, "Well, I'm a satanic chef," or it's explained to people, they go, "Do you sacrifice babies? Do you <laughs> do you drink blood?" and These are people that are supposedly super open-minded, super diverse, but when it comes to uh, involving themselves with somebody like me, they don't wanna have the name Satanic attached to them. They don't wanna take those risks. So I see it in two ways. I see it as, I see it as a social acceptant kind of way of thinking. And I see it as uh, from a discriminatory discriminatory point of view that I think that it is very discriminating to uh, not want to do business with somebody because the name is scary. I think that we've had uh, situations over the history of time, and we still are, where people have been labeled and have been afraid to, you know, have somebody that is working for them that happens to be a gay chef. We're not going to, we're not going to give the chef any PR because we don't want it to look bad on our business is an example or uh, our chef is a person of color or the manager is a person of color. We can't, we can't publicize ourselves because we don't want to have uh, some kind of bad press and lose business. So I think that uh, to answer your question that, I think that people, when it comes to seeing the word satanic, that we're still very behind the times and that people are extremely misinformed, miseducated when it comes to this kind of a topic that we were taught growing up that satanic means, blood sacrifices, uh, stuff that you would see on the CW network, (laughs) Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, satanic panic, uh, no. I and mean, that that's that's not true. And after World War II, people were saying the same things about the Jews. Which is, you know, they they were like, "Oh, they're 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 devil worshipers because they don't worship Jesus." And like my father, for instance, he grew up and he went to uh when he was going to school, people would throw rocks at him and call him Christ-killer and things like that. So I think we're still very, very far away from being accepted into the world. And I would hope that that happens in my lifetime at some point.
0: So I, I have a, a question about, um, I mean, a few questions about being acceptance and uh, in the food industry uh, and <laughs> for people who think we sacrifice things because without great sacrificing, nothing happens. So lots and lots of gourmets and chefs think that um, you can't have a great dish without having expensive ingredients
1: mm-hmm. or,
0: or rare ingredients. Can you have amazing food at low cost? At Absolutely. W- what you have around.
1: Absolutely. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't be, your food cost should be low and you should be using, you should be an alchemist. You should know how to cook food and make it taste amazing. You should be able to take a steak and make it taste that isn't an A5 Wagyu steak. And you should make that steak taste amazing by knowing how to prepare it, knowing how to air dry it, knowing how to age it, knowing how to salt it and bring it to room temp and sear it and doing certain techniques instead of taking shortcuts and buying something that costs you million, million dollars. I see a lot of people making that mistake all over again and all over again, and it makes their business fall.
0: So how do you choose your ingredients? How do you test the quality of them? Do, do you, do you, uh, usually buy the same thing over and over because you know, it comes from a, it comes from a nice brand or something like that? How do you test?
1: Seasonally, when farmer's markets are open, I will go to the farmer's market and buy mostly from the farmer's market. When it's off season, there are different brands that I will use to purchase things like fruit, which I know are not gonna taste as good as a berry that's grown locally. So what would a chef do to buy a, a bunch of strawberries from California, which, or standard that you can get all year round to make it taste amazing. Well, there's certain things you can do. You could make a jam out of it. You could make a jelly. You could, as like I said before, make preserves. You could. Uh, you could do different sorts of things to make the product taste better. And that—that's the way I look at things. Is that everything? It's like an alchema- alchematical kind of problem that you need to solve, and you need to make it taste good.
0: Do you need to have a lot of material or skills to be a good cook? Because like making preserve, you have to know some techniques. And yeah, I know that here in France, people uh, praise doing it in like a copper uh, pot culture whatever
1: yeah like a um like a mason jar and people don't know how to necessarily do that i think a big shortcut for that will be people that just want to vacuum seal things which is perfectly fine i if i had a vacuum sealer i would do the same thing and making preserves is an art form where you and it's been happening for, for almost thousands of years now where people will bring something up in a pot to a broil and then we'll cook it at a certain time and then let them sit out. And then we'll let a natural suction happen. And then we'll be good on a shelf all throughout the winter.
0: I've been called a witch for that. I have a shit ton of glass jars and I do that. <laughs> so I guess I'm, I'm a satanic witch of the kitchen. Um, there you go. <laughs> so we, we were talking about uh, sacrifice and what we do in the kitchen and how people think that we... We do those kind of things. Um, Talking about sacrifice, you recently performed the first vegan lamb sacrifice for Lupercalia at VHQ at the estate in the kitchen back there. Um, So tell us about uh, pairing food with the satanic values and holidays. What's your process in choosing what to cook for VHQ?
1: The process to cook for VHQ will obviously be for what is not trending, but what is, you know. Yes, it is seasonal, uh, not just trending, but what is, you know, what I can use to, you know, create a, uh, yes, trending in many ways, which I can use to sell to other people. And that could be something that's in season. And that's what I try and encompass when I do VHQ. When hexanaut happens, there will be more things to play around with. And over the winter, there is not much to play around with here in the northern part of the United States, northern eastern part, sadly. We don't have access to very, very um, amazing things. And once spring comes, that's my favorite time to cook because you get everything just blooming. You get like, you know, so many cool things you can play around with. And ramps are a very good example of that. They they only grow at a certain period of time. I think it's from like around late March to like early May, and you buy a ton of them, and you might use a couple of them raw, and you might buy pounds of them and peel them and pickle them, and they last you all year round.
0: So I guess we just got a hint at what you're going to offer us for Exenacht, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yay! <laughs> I got some tea out of you. <laughs> So talking about drinks um, and food, um, something that I do in restaurants is pairing drinks and food. Yeah. Um, So do you have any kind of like favorite magic potion juices or um, tea of choice? Because we're having tea
1: right now. So yeah, I do. I love green tea. Jasmine green tea is my favorite, but if I can get a hold of just regular green tea, that is something that I love. I love coffee a little bit too much. And
0: <laughs> I can't <laughs> blame you.
1: That's one of my favorite things to drink, and I love seltzer water.
0: Cool. Do you uh, do you make your own um, like flavor seltzer water?
1: No, I don't. I don't have a machine. I buy it. I usually buy a local brand. Polar seltzer.
0: If I if I can dare giving an advice to the chef. I used to work in a crepery that was right in front of an olive oil and balsamic uh, place. And mm-hmm. they would sell a a twelve years old uh, peach balsamic. I love to put that in my seltzer water and also in any kind That's of beer cool. that was like uninteresting or white wine and people would be like that can't be vinegar and i'm like sure is sure as fuck is
1: yeah you <laughs> can put it on your so ice good. cream yeah i it know before. it's
0: so good the raspberry uh dark balsamic on on ice cream even vegan ice cream if you have like coconut sorbet, whatever it's so good
1: Please exactly try, you
0: guys educate yourself to like weird stuff and and get some balsamic on your ice cream <laughs>
1: That's, that's such a good point there. And I think going back to what you said, like, I think like, can you make amazing food at a low cost? When I taste a lot of vegan food that is pre-prepared that I buy in the grocery store, because I have tried plant-based diets, uh, I've noticed that a lot of it just doesn't taste that great. And they can make it taste a lot better by incorporating different kinds of ingredients that can be readily available to people like things like you just said, like a aged peach balsamic vinegar, you know, Vincanto or something. And and that, that, that that is something very important to think about is that you as a chef or as a cook and a home cook can make anything taste better. If you want to, you can have a better life if you want to. And that is the same thing with being a Satanist.
0: Yeah, we make our own destiny. We make our own plates.
1: <laughs> we do.
0: So, what is um, talking about destiny and like future and everything? What is the the thing you're the most proud of as an accomplishment, whether it is as a chef or a Satanist or a person?
1: My most uh, proud accomplishment would be personally uh, not drinking I think that, that is
0: a great accomplishment and honestly I know it's it's a generic thing to say but proud of you
1: <laughs> Thank you It's been almost four years now so I feel a lot a lot better with my life than I did. I lost a ton of weight too. I was two hundred and thirty-two hundred and thirty-eight pounds in two thousand sixteen, and I'm now one eighty-five, one ninety. Let's not lie. I put on a couple pounds since the <laughs> pandemic started.
0: I mean, a lot of people have.
1: But it's it, you can't
0: really blame yourself. You're you're dealing with so much, like the rest of us like this is like, the least of our worries and we don't see it, it but we're just alone with ourselves whatever you know? <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what makes you the, the happiest as a chef as a Satanist or you know like as a person um, and especially in those hard days what makes you the happiest
1: feeling self accomplished and knowing that I have done things right and that i carry uh, that i've not made any mistakes i think i've become more sensitive over the past four years to making uh, inadvertent mistakes like reading forgetting, forgetting to send an email or um, just simple tasks or because uh, i could go well you know when i was drinking i could just use that as an excuse for like n- not responding to something quick enough but you know, now it's like, now I have, uh, I've set the bar higher with myself. So that that goes with cooking. Like if I'm working in a kitchen and I have under seasoned something and I am selling it on a plate and the chef comes over, the executive chef, friend of mine or somebody, and he tastes it and he goes, uh, dude, that tastes, um, it needs a little bit more seasoning in it. Just a little bit more lemon juice. I mean, eventually in my mind, I will get upset with myself that I didn't, you know, I didn't do things right. I always ask myself every time I make something, as an example, to have somebody else taste my food, to give me a second opinion on my own things. And that is something I learned early on. And that goes with teamwork. If you are a leader and you ask your team, why don't you try these dishes that I've created and give me some positive reconstructive feedback or constructive feedback, sorry. And if people can't accept constructive feedback, then you know they're not a team player and you know that they're not going to be involved. And that, that's the way I look at things like in general, in my head, like.
0: I, I, I always love to have feedback, but I have to say I was under seasoned because you can season your own dish. I don't like salt in mine. So just add the nice volcano salt I have on the table for you. Thank you.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) But anyways, I thought you were going to say Jack when I said, what makes you the happiest? I was like,
1: Jack, Jack. (laughs) It does make me the happiest. He's my, he's like my little buddy. I love him a lot. I adopted Jack in September. He came from a family that was not very kind to him. They treated him as an inanimate object is an Instagram thing, I guess. I can't find him anywhere. And, uh, they, they supposedly had a ton of money and they just had a doggy door in a room that they'd let him go out and come out. And he had no interactions with any other pets and they had a prong collar on him, which is inhumane. And, uh, their main concern was that he would get out of the room and he would jump on their expensive couch and they lost it after he escaped out of the room and jumped on their couch when they were sleeping a couple of times. So they surrendered him. So I think his, the, he was probably, they adopted him in a mall and that mall puppies are the worst because they are used into forced breeding. And uh, so he, He was a dog. He was bought at like a a pet store somewhere. I don't know if it was a mall or something, but, Um, you know, he at eight weeks and he was probably surrendered at a year and a half. So I'm glad I have him. We're
0: also glad you have him because we love seeing him going around being a mini chef, being your sous chef. He's so cute.
1: He's adorable. He's on a diet now because he has gained a significant (laughs) amount of weight.
0: His daddy cooking a little too much. Anyways.
1: (laughs) Giving him things like pizza crust or steak or anything he wants. No more. He's on a 700 uh, calorie a day diet now.
0: I mean, he's a small furry person. So I think 700 is good.
1: My friend said that he looked like a mortadella the other day.
0: I love that he's here with us. Oh, I have something to ask you because we're in this wonderful room with all the stuff that I love. Books and oddities and curiosity. I've heard that you have a memorabilia collection. How did you become a collector?
1: I became a collector... By like the around way, 27 Jack can old.
0: jump on the couch and roll around on the on me. the rugs and everything is welcome to this house is his house did you hear that Sorry. Jack
1: <laughs> he can hear it dogs have good ears they can hear through headphones <laughs> I became a collector well I would collect VHS tapes or little trinkets here and there in my early 20s but I really got into collecting things after the first time i quit drinking uh towards the uh, towards the end of 2007 and i would buy a lot because i had tons of money left over and i would buy things on ebay i would buy things from online auctions i have tons of movie memorabilia from the monsters to the adams family to uh, some some cool true crime stuff some uh, I had some really great taxidermy things. I've got a two-headed cow. i got two albino goat heads. And I've got some really cool artwork that I've collected over the years. I've got a Lee Chidler's original paint uh, picture behind me of David Bowie. He was his tour manager and became a world-renowned photographer, most notably for taking his pictures of Lou Reed. He was around the same genre as Mick Rock, who is also an amazing rock and roll photographer. We did a lot of pictures of Bowie, but I have that and I have a lot of this artwork from a friend of mine name, who passed away recently named Steven Kasner. And I've got, I've got so much cool stuff like spook show posters, which were really big back in the vaudeville days. This is before uh, we had uh, TV. So people would go see theater theater more often so there were lots of magicians and uh, if you wanted to see a horror movie it would be something like uh, they had maybe silent films back then but they also had live shows where people would dress up and interact with the crowd so I have a lot of those older posters which are pretty cool and uh, some thank
0: you for uh, thank you for bringing that um, painting to be with us today and uh, and I have seen one of your vaudeville. Uh, poster in the kitchen and it's written in French and that made me that gave me a big smile I told you about it
1: <laughs> the Frankenstein one the uh yeah. the monsters
0: it was it was great I loved it I was like wait is that in French oh my god yes I I love noticing that um I think it's
1: monsters go home for the movie the monsters go home That's what I'll have was.
0: to look at it again I'm definitely going back to the kitchen. Uh, so um, before we wrap this up any uh, you told us about the memorabilia and I'm so glad because I love this stuff, um, I'd like to know, I know you have a very dear friend Miss um, LaVey and I wanted to know if you had some like history with the LaVey's and like some stories to tell us before we wrap it up but it, it's not anything to do with the chef thing unless you maybe cooked for them or something but i i want to know i want the tea
1: before there was any satanic temple there was obviously just the church of satan so 2004 i moved to california and i went looking for it because <laughs> i want i i had read somewhere it was torn down the black house which was a black mm-hmm. house victorian house the anton lavey dilapidated black house that he lived in and i went in, to go find it and i walked all the way down uh, geary street and then california street with like some kind of like motorcycle boots on and which was a bad idea it was also the middle of the summer in san francisco which believe it or not usually is cold but that day was extremely hot and uh yeah i get there and it's just a, a fence so i had some friends that were friends with um zandora and her ex-husband uh, stanton who's anton leve's grandson and uh we were introduced and uh, they would come up every other weekend or i would go down and see them and we would party together we came up with this idea through my uh which is why I'm calling my cookbook Black Arches. Uh, Black Arches was a, an event that I was going to have that I made as my senior project, my, my project in culinary school that would inc- involve bands and uh, different kinds of artists that were trying to contribute to Satanism. So we ended up doing, taking that idea and creating the world's first public satanic wedding where Stanton and Zandora got married and I uh, Stanton convinced me and tricked me to move to Los Angeles in 2006. And I was deep into substance abuse then and drinking. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he, uh, mo- came up a couple of weeks prior to me moving and brought my things down in boxes. And when I got there, uh, I was there for a couple of days and I flew home and I got there. When I got there, I did not have a room. It was being built. And I immediately saw that somebody else was living there. My our friend Marika at the time, she's still friends with me. And he was telling me that he was planning on kicking her out in a couple of weeks and that I was going to take her room. And I said, that's freaking terrible. No way. So, I knew as soon as I stepped into that place that every uh, everything that I thought about this guy being a stand-up, working working dude, that he was just another scam artist off the street. I basically learned that there is a whole, that at the time, that there were a lot of people that surrounded themselves, including around this Church of Satan, were all scam artists. And I was not cool with that. So I just, <sighs> I worked around it, and we made this event happen. And, uh, afterwards, I gave him the respect of uh, Danzig, and uh, it was lucky that he got to know who I was. And I, because shortly afterwards, Stanton had been doing all these terrible things, and it was bad. It was like terrible. And I, I, I would all I wanted to do was just go work somewhere downtown, and just start a new life for myself. My whole dream growing up was to move to hollywood or living la or something and i was seeing my dreams being ripped out of me so at that point i knew that it was all scam a lot of it was and that this form of satanism was not going to work and when Xandora left him and she called me i was i found out why she did and that he had not gotten any help and that he had gone downhill so it was it was bad and i realized that the stream was all dead and when Lucian told me about the satanic temple i felt that this was a second uh it was like a uh, a second chance in satanism so that's all i have to say right now I'll, i i you guys can read the book once it comes out and I will have more juicy details in there. And hopefully it will help somebody in a similar situation want to leave an abusive, uh, problematic uh, friendship or relationship. So boundaries are important and setting boundaries for people, especially people that don't want to accept those boundaries is something that people need to learn. So that's all I have to say there
0: thank you for sharing your experience
1: thank you for
0: uh letting me interview you and getting to know you better and uh getting to know what you're gonna do next what ha what happened to you in your life that led you to be here with us and like ravish us with all your nice dishes and stories and i am definitely going to try and uh get a tour of the memorabilia one day (laughs) um Absolutely. And um, yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me on this today and joining me, letting me join you in the tea room. And uh, you guys can follow me on social media, the Satanic Chef official on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter at the Satanic Chef 666. Actually, it's just Satanic Chef 666. And Facebook at the Satanic Chef. And thank you guys again. I hope to see you all in uh, April, he'll see.
0: Yeah, he no